Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Rob Ford and Maria Sobolewska, who are both professors of politics at the University of Manchester, about their new book, Brexit Land, Identity, Diversity and the Reshaping of British Politics. So welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Um, This has the benefits of being a really great book. It's, you know, a really sort of interesting read for anyone um, interested in contemporary British politics. But it's also a book that um, is almost kind of uh, grappling with things that are far beyond uh, the title and the topic. You know, it's really trying to get to grips, I think, with long-term and and structural changes that are going on in many uh, societies across the world. And I guess the focus of that you know long-term structural change is around people's identities and this is probably where we can start uh, discussing about the book uh, and I'm interested in this idea about why you wanted to write a book that was about this idea about identities and, and why people's identities matter now. Well I mean both of us have worked on aspects of this for a long time. Uh, I've worked on uh, immigration politics and the radical right for a long time. Maria's worked on the politics of ethnic minorities for a long time. And the common thread that unites those two things is the exceptional political power of people's uh, group attachments, uh, their sense of identity, their sense of uh, in-groups, groups they consider us, uh, their feelings of threat and uh, hostility towards outgroups, the thems out there. And so we thought that a book that brought those two sides of the coin together uh, would be a great project. And we'd been talking about that for a long time. But then once Brexit happened and all the disruptive aftermath of that as well, we felt that there was a real gap there in terms of understanding how this wasn't just about the EU. It wasn't even just about UKIP or the Conservative Party. It was a story that has its origins and its roots in social changes, 
rising education levels, rising ethnic diversity, mass immigration that go back uh, literally decades. So we set ourselves the modest task of uh, telling a four decade long story to explain how we got the politics we have today. I mean, I, I think the book really succeeds in in doing that, actually, partially because it um, has got this, you know, obvious kind of hook of how do we explain just what is going on in, in contemporary British politics and, you know, and things around Brexit. But also because I think a lot of the um, social changes that you're trying to describe are, are now quite familiar um, topics or, or, or territories for um, contemporary media discussions, um, certainly for uh, bits of, of academia. And again, you know, far beyond uh, Britain into European, American, Australian uh, societies and and you sort of touched on them a, a little bit, um, but I, I suppose it's really important to um, maybe contextualise the individual discussions that go on around uh, particular groups in these longer term changes. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about like what's been happening with say education, what's been happening with changes in uh, Britain's racial diversity, and most importantly how these things are not even, you know, they're not even uh, across the country, but also they're not even in terms of different generations, different uh, age groups. So what we um, what we describe in our book is um, actually quite a shocking uh, degree of change that we don't really appreciate, um, especially in, in those younger generations, we take them for granted. But even within one lifetime, uh, the people who, who are now um, kind of pensioners, they have grown up in a very different country and in a very different society to what our children are now growing up in. And uh, the first change that we describe is this expansion of higher education, uh, but it's not even just the higher education, although we think this is the most significant one. Uh, but generally speaking, about um, only about um, 10% or less used to go to university. This was an elite uh, kind of future. Very few people would have ever considered this as, as a thing to do. And nowadays, kids graduating from high schools... Uh, in fact, half of them for the very first time last year has go, have gone to university. So it has become the new normal and certainly for for quite a, a, a huge uh, number of population. Um, and this change is very important because this is very well documented. The people who do have higher education, especially, but generally uh, that are educated, do have different values, different political values, different social values. And this change on its own, I think, would have already been quite consequential. But what is uh, has been happening that at the same time as uh, our society has become more and more educated, we also saw the rise of diversity. And of course, Britain has always been a diverse country. When you look at the history of Britain, we have a lot of uh, immigration and a lot of cultural mixing. And even when we think about non-white people, there has been a very long history of uh, people from Africa, from India, living in Britain, uh, making Britain their home. However, all of this was on a comparatively tiny scale. And when you think about the 1950s, 60s, 70s, where immigration from uh, what used to be British uh, territories of the Commonwealth 
when that starts, this is a really different experience uh, for the British people who were born and bred in England and often would have never seen anyone of a different race, uh, of quite a significantly different religion. So what happens within that one lifetime, we go from a society where it's a unique experience to encounter somebody from a different race, from those very different places in the world, to a society in which uh, almost anybody who lives in a city has a very uh, diverse school that they go to and encounters those people routinely. And even British people who don't live in diverse areas, in fact, they encounter diversity through the media and mainstream media. Uh, for example, has diversified, uh, diversified quite immensely, and of course, politics. So we do see that within 50, 60 years of so somebody's single lifetime, we have a completely different society. And that society, of course, looks different, sounds different, and therefore has different values, believes in different things. I, I hesitate to say, you know, mechanistically, these social changes in things like education and um uh, ethnic and racial diversity have like produced um, new um, sets of identity groups in, in British society, but they do underpin what you describe as the kind of three big blocks uh, that characterize um, contemporary Britain now, which is essentially uh, two sets of liberal groups and then a conservative group. Um, and again, you know, these, these map on to, things like age and, and things like geography as well. So I wonder if you could introduce our kind of um, our stars of the show, as it were, our conviction liberals, uh, necessity liberals and identity conservatives. Yes, certainly. And you're, you're quite right. I mean, one has to paint with a broad brush when telling a, um, a, a big story uh, like this one. And these are all we should emphasise tendencies not absolutes it's not that people get you know branded uh, with one of these group identities and that's that's what they are um you know uh, then and forevermore uh it's more that uh, there are tendencies towards particular uh, sets of attitudes tendencies towards emphasizing particular kinds of things and these we can sort of summarize with these kinds of group labels so to, to, to take them each in turn what we call necessity liberals that's essentially the term we give for ethnic minority voters and we call them necessity liberals because they are motivated essentially from group self-interest to align themselves with the liberal part of the majority population uh, for the very simple and blunt reason that if hostility towards minority groups and outgroups becomes politically mobilised, they are liable to be on the receiving end of that hostility. Uh, so they will consistently align uh, with whichever political parties seem to be most consistently uh, opposed to such mobilisation and view with suspicion uh, parties that, that seek to profit from that mobilisation. Uh, alongside them, we have um, the main liberal group, the sort of the the, the uh, identity liberals, conviction liberals uh, amongst the majority population. And there, uh, I mean, in a line, and we've seen it uh, over the past summer, um, should emphasise after we uh, submitted the manuscript of the book in the Black Lives Matter movement, these are white voters for whom anti-racism and similar social values are really very powerful political motivations, paramount political goals. Uh, so these are voters who have not only grown up in a diverse society, but regard 
uh, embracing uh, that diversity and protecting minorities as central political values. Then on the other side of the coin, you have uh, identity conservatives who tend to be older voters with lower levels of formal education who are motivated by what we call ethnocentrism. Uh, That is a worldview that tends to divide most political problems into issues of us against them, narrowly defined in-groups, defending themselves against threatening out-groups. We're talking to you at the moment, Dave, in the early uh, period of October 2020. Uh, If you want to see what ethnocentric politics looks like, go and watch some of the adverts for the Donald Trump presidential campaign. It's a sort of absolutely classic ethnocentric political campaign. There is a virtuous us under siege from a series of threatening out-groups. And there's a pretty decent sized segment of the majority group population that has kind of always thought in those terms. But what uh, rising ethnic diversity and mass immigration have done is provide them with very salient outgroups to mobilize uh, against. So that's that's the three groups in short. You know, there's the ethnocentric identity conservatives, um, the anti-racist identity liberals in the majority group, and then the necessity liberals of ethnic minorities who align themselves with identity liberal white voters because they have a strong group interest in being protected from politically mobilised ethnocentric hostility. I mean, the the question that follows sort of neatly and and logically from that, and, you know, um, it's there in your um, examples of uh, ethnocentric political campaigning, is how conflicts not emerged but almost kind of like how conflicts are kind of baked into um, at least one of these forms of identity but also um, uh, perhaps in, inevitable or, or, or unavoidable in um, in the politics between these three groups so uh, what we are um, actually trying to argue with the book is that they are not inevitable, but they are always there ready to be mobilized by political actors. So our book is kind of half about society in terms of the social change and the attitudes uh, that people have, so the political values and attitudes on certain issues. But the second part of the puzzle is what do political parties and other political actors do with that underlying, as you say, tension between these groups. Uh, so one of the uh, very important things about ethnocentrism that we think is crucial to remember is that it is a very um, stable tendency. Uh, in fact, some uh, people would argue that they are this kind of tendency is, is almost innately human. It's what makes us human. We do like to categorize people into groups, into us and them. And um, a lot of um, ethnographic research and work has been uh, showing since the, the uh, previous century and before that ethnocentrism was a tendency behind a lot of um, human behaviors like uh, keeping up traditions um, and kind of group um, uh, culture. So it is always there and this conflict does exist, but it can exist at the in a background of politics, if you want. And I think the kind of 90s uh, typical... Uh, incantation of it's the economy stupid is a good example of how these conflicts can be dormant. They don't have to be mobilized into politics. And so, in fact, uh, the second part of a book is a story of how the politicians ended up um, making these these conflicts salient and mobilizing and capitalizing on them. 
Yeah, one one analogy I, I've used in the past in presenting this kind of work is is the analogy of forest fires. So some kinds of forest, it's innate to uh, how they grow uh, and the cycles and the climate in which they grow that forest fires will happen. They produce an awful lot of flammable undergrowth and every so often it burns and often that burning is part of the natural life cycle of the forest. But the forest isn't on fire most of the time. Things have to spark off the fire. Once it gets going, it can then take on a dynamic of its own. But most of the time, the forest won't be on fire. So, you know, there is this also supply side and event-based element to this. It's not inevitable that these conflicts will be mobilized all the time. Um, But the potential for them is always there. Maria mentioned the kind of, you know, second half of the book or or, or the... um maybe we could call it like, you know, the sort of core case study um, that the book uses to illustrate this and, and, and work out um, how that um, spark um, might, might happen. And it, in essence, the middle of the book tells um, a story of, of two parts about immigration and uh, immigration policy, and then also, you know, public engagement or public attitudes towards immigration. And, we have, I guess, the kind of recent history of immigration, which um, manifested itself in, I, I guess, in, you know, ways we'd maybe be familiar with in terms of um, outright hostility, um, in terms of public opinions towards particular kinds of immigration, although not others, um, a, a, an obvious, you know, sort of disconnect or or distance between certain parts of the political system and certain parts of the public and then this changes um, and I think that idea of you know individuals uh, taking advantage or you know making things salient becomes much more important so I wonder if you if you tell me that long story of immigration maybe first thinking about historically and then we can turn to a more detailed discussion of um, the role of immigration maybe in the last kind of 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the things we really wanted to flag up and highlight in this book, because we think it's really underappreciated, is that the story of immigration politics in Britain uh, runs through two waves, um, because Britain has experienced two major waves of mass immigration. The, the first was the post-war Commonwealth wave, and really critically, there was political mobilisation against that influx of mass migration that happened within the traditional centre-right Conservative Party. So it's long been observed that the radical right in Britain, at least prior to the last 10 years or so, didn't really take hold in the way that it did in many other countries. And there are lots of different theories about why that may be. We think one really important factor is because the ethnocentric voters who elsewhere in Europe were mobilised against immigration by the radical right had already been mobilised against immigration in Britain by the centre-right, by the Conservative Party and by, in particular, Enoch Powell. Uh, So Powell made a series of very stark anti-immigration speeches, the kind of language that couldn't actually be used in politics today, which is an illustration of how attitudes are changing making it very clear to ethnocentric voters that if they were threatened by Commonwealth immigration, then the Conservative Party was the party that was going to uh, exercise control uh, over that threat. Um, That linkage was then reinforced in somewhat more moderate language by Margaret Thatcher, who gave an infamous interview in 1978 in which she said uh, many people are are afraid of being swamped 
by people from uh, different cultures. Again, a classic expression of the ethnocentric worldview, an in-group threatened with swamping by a threatening out-group, even though that doesn't at all line up with the numbers involved. And if you look at the polling data from this period, what you see is that before Powell's interventions begin, ethnocentric voters don't have a clear sense of which party is best placed to control immigration. They don't have a preference. From after Powell onwards, all the way through uh, to the coalition era, they have a very clear sense of which party they think is best placed to control immigration. And that party is the Conservative Party. So you have a political alignment in a sense, between ethnocentric voters and the Conservative Party for decades. And this is also the period when a political alignment builds up between ethnic minority voters, our necessity liberals, and the Labour Party. And for the same reason, because they recognise that if it comes to the crunch, if there's a pressure situation where white voters are feeling threatened by people like them, the Conservative Party will side with the white voters who feel threatened uh, over them. So this alignment was then in place for 40 years before we get to the coalition. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off yeah before we get i guess to like literally brexit land um, the one little uh, aside that i would interject here actually because we make a point of this in the book is that um many people uh, object to this narrative of um immigration being uh, the trigger point here as a kind of blaming the immigrants. And this is obviously not what we uh, think at all, but one of the really great examples of why immigration is such a trigger point um, is actually uh, comes from a very old study from the 1930s of um, a small town in Oxfordshire called Bunbury, where we had the pleasure of actually living for a year. Um, and when we moved there, we were given this book um, about Bunbury uh, by a very famous sociologist, Margaret Stacy. And what we found reading this book, that this book is a book about immigration and how immigration threatened the Bamburians uh, in the 1930s and how it really appended their politics in Bunbury. And the one interesting thing about that is that these immigrants in Bunbury were not from abroad. They were from other towns in Oxfordshire and other counties in the in England. And so this is, I think, an important point to remember where we talk about immigration, whether it is from Commonwealth or uh, later on in during the second wave uh, from the EU, it is not about who the immigrant is. 
it is not threatening who that might be. It's, it wasn't the fact that uh, they were racially different or ethnically different or spoke a different language. These are not necessary conditions for people to find immigrants threatening. Immigrants are almost a default natural human outgroup. And it is, in fact, um, really not a position that it was anything to do with the type of immigrants that were coming at all. It is to do with the fact that people who are ethnocentric and find others threatening will always object to immigration, wherever that may be from. Yeah, and, and actually, there's um, I, I just l- looked it up uh, as, as you were talking. There's uh, a point in the middle of the book where you show some historical uh, public opinion data around uh, Irish immigrants as opposed to former uh, or current Commonwealth nation immigrants. And, you know, the, the way that, uh, you know, these are both categories of immigrant. There's not anything um, in, you know, sort of um, the, the idea of their immigration, but they have these, you know, very, very different um, responses to, I guess we, we might characterize British society in the 1960s as, as maybe being, you know, sort of more driven by um, identity conservatives or uh, perhaps, you know, uh, more ethnocentric. Or, or am I being sort of slightly unfair to Britain in the 1960s? No. And this is a big point that we actually make in the book that um, the people were more ethnocentric for, for two big reasons, uh, these social changes that we discussed at the beginning. So when we say that education made people more tolerant, of course, the flip side is that if we lived in a society in which 90% didn't have uh, university education, that means they were much more um, exclusionary and they were much more uh, ethnocentric. And similarly, Uh, having um, not experienced diversity, they lived in a society in which diversity was threatening just by deem of of just being unfamiliar. And so when uh, we then fast forward to just before Brexit, when we have um, the most recent kind of data on on ethnocentrism levels in the society, we're using the British social attitudes from 2013 uh, for this, for example. What we see is that a lot of people in Britain are now extremely tolerant. And even when we talk about this group that we call identity conservatives, they are much more tolerant than their own grandparents would have been. Yeah, there's there's a certain paradox here, which is that the identity conflicts are more politicised now, even though society as a whole and all three of our groups are more open, more tolerant than they were in, say, the 1960s and the 1970s. And the resolution of that paradox is simple. It's as always in electoral politics, follow the numbers. In the end, both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party of the 1960s and 70s had a really strong electoral incentive to deliver policies on things like immigration that were acceptable to identity conservative voters because that was the overwhelming majority of their electorates. That's no longer the case today. And we've seen many times in the past 10 years that particularly in the Labour Party, but also in the Conservative Party, the the proposition of restrictionist or socially conservative policies on issues like immigration and other identity issues are very contentious. And they're contentious because there's a big and vocal electorate on the other side of that argument now in a way that wasn't the case in the past. And this is the section of the electorate that has really uh, transformed um, not just actually the you know electoral underpinnings of the Labour Party, but also actually the, the Labour Party itself. And 
I'm really interested in that because you can tell the story of um, kind of contemporary politics um, through changes in the Labour Party, but you also see, I, I think, a mirror uh, in some ways of what's happened to uh, the contemporary Conservative um, Party by understanding how Labour's electoral coalition has changed. So what is this relationship between our um, conviction um, liberals and and Labour? Well, it really, the, the big changes start to happen in uh, the 2010s. I mean, it's one of the un- underappreciated uh, things about the Ed Miliband opposition is that this is the period when Labour starts to shift decisively in terms of the relative group sizes towards being an identity liberal um, party with the majority of its votes coming from university graduates and ethnic minorities. It is important to emphasise that these changes don't, you know, it's not wiping the whiteboard and starting again. These get layered on top of the existing alignments that can be traced back decades in some parts of the country, back almost a century with regards Labour. But it increases the pressure on those traditional alignments when your activist base, when your new voters, when your safest constituencies, when your MPs are all very consistently on the identity liberal side of this argument. And when your ambitious candidates in seats where the Labour vote is growing are on the identity liberal side of this argument. At the same time, Labour was losing votes already in the coalition years to the identity conservative side of the argument. But in this period, it wasn't primarily to the conservatives. uh, It was to UKIP. The kinds of voters who ended up in the conservative column in 2017 and 2019, delivering the now much discussed fall of the red wall, they were often going into the UKIP column in 2010 to 15, even though they disliked austerity, even though they wanted greater government intervention in the economy, even though they backed more on public services, because what for many of them mattered more was the perceived threat from immigration, was the perceived disconnect between their social values and Labour's social values. So you've got all of these things going on uh, in the coalition. But because Labour's support kind of remains broadly stable in the aggregate, I think a lot of this churn gets missed. It's like if you empty the plug on a hot bath and pour cold water into the top, the temperature can be changing even though the level of water in the bath remains stable the whole time. I mean, it's a really interesting um, example, actually, of the way that, in some ways, the um, classic kind of territory of politics, electoral behaviour, etc., was, you know, dominated by economic questions. And again, Maria, you mentioned kind of the era of it's the economy stupid. Um, But really, you know, our Brexit land moment is one about these uh, particular kinds of identity and, and, and value-led expressions of um, electoral behaviour. And the way to, you know, sort of crystallise that or or think through that is with uh, the referendum. Um, so, so what is your sort of um, Brexit land analysis um, of the, uh, the referendum over European uh, membership? So uh, what we... Um focused on particularly in the book is that the referendum offered this binary choice that uh, was not about economy and it was being led by the uh, this revolt on the right so the revolt of the uh, people who were threatened by uh, the influx of the other and however defined and however imagined and 
therefore they kind of gone into the campaign with the with a force of emotion and identity and a clear argument what this campaign will be about and so we do see a feeble attempt to reorient this uh, campaign and therefore Brexit towards economy, but it is so feeble. It is actually uh, quite laughable. We actually have found for the book the front page of the Better in Europe campaign that had, um, I think, one of the the best uh, examples of how feeble it was. It said something like, um, I think it was Martin Lewis who who said that, uh, you know, having considered all the pros and cons, he's sort of uh, leaning towards uh, staying in Europe. And this was the best quote, the most passionate quote they, they could have found to to make a positive argument to stay in Europe. So um, the truth is that it was the Leave side that has led in framing Brexit uh, in terms of identity politics. It was always about identity politics for them. And so... The Remain side had to accept this tone. And once the referendum has happened, it has woken up. And it has woken up with this new, newly acquired knowledge that something has happened, that it put them on one side of the of the fence and the people on the other side of the fence have won. And so we have gone uh, from a narrative in which we always knew there was something going on on the right, on the anti-immigrant front, but we didn't know what the opposite was. We didn't know uh, what was the opposing force. And even just in the campaign, we didn't know what it was because there were so many messy and feeble, as I said, arguments made to remain. However, on the day of the announcement of the results of the referendum, what emerged is a strong idea what a Remain side was. And it was in opposition to ethnocentrism, to anti-immigration, to uh, this kind of vision of smaller... Uh, Europe, a less connected Europe, more inward-looking, uh, sorry, Britain, more inward-looking Britain. And so we make this argument in the book that Brexit was a moment of awakening and, in fact, uh, spared on a mobilisation on the other side of the of the fence. I mean, I, I remember very, very clearly the days after the referendum result was announced. I'm sure you do as well, Dave. And um, my Facebook feed, my Twitter feed filled up with socially liberal pro-Remain people saying, my country has been hijacked by people whose values I don't share, who are doing things that I regard as threatening and destructive, and I've no idea how to stop it because politics seems to be broken. And I remember replying at the time, and I said, congratulations, guys, you know exactly how UKIP voters think. That's what they've been saying uh, for the past 10 years, more or less. Um, You are now in the same mindset as them. So... It really was like this is the time when this becomes a symmetrical conflict before the running was really being made by ethnocentric voters who already felt threatened in in that way. After Brexit, you know, two things. One is the Remain side feels equally threatened uh, and equally motivated to mobilise against the threat. And secondly, these kind of inchoate ideas suddenly acquire a name you know now you can't walk down a street uh, without and if you were to say to a random person in the street what does leave mean what does remain mean they can immediately give you uh, a kind of set of uh, social stereotypes uh, a group attachment they know what these tribes mean and that was another consequence a very important consequence of the referendum and uh, we actually have run some of these uh, survey questions amongst the 
British population uh, two years after the referendum. And what we saw is that they identified very strongly with the new Brexit identities, but also, as Rob said, agreed what it meant to be uh, a Remain person or a Leaver person. And even though uh, there was this clear division in how positively these two groups were evaluated from the other side of the fence, right? So the uh, Remain people uh, were accusing um, uh, leavers of all sorts of nasty things, etc., and the other way around. But asked, for example, uh, where the leavers older and where they remained as younger, everybody was on the same page. So this is becoming from a fleeting campaign slogan. This is becoming part of a of a fabric of our society, our political and social identities. I mean, obviously, that you know raises the question of so what's likely to happen. You, I mean, there's loads of things that we could have talked about in the book. You talk about uh, Scotland independence referendum. There's stuff about um, the two general elections of 17 and 19. There's a much more detailed engagement with the recent history of immigration. But I think. The question that really stands out from um, the almost, I guess, kind of you know playing field of British politics that we confront with these um, quite fixed and quite intuitively, you know, kind of understandable identities is what's going to happen. You know, are we going to see a sort of further, um, you know, kind of collapse of uh, particular political parties and, and the rise of new ones? Could we ever go back to, you know, the kind of uh, pre-Brexit uh, land identities um, or will things just get kind of, you know, more messy, more fragmented? What, what, what do you think? I mean, possibly disappointingly for people who've just written a 400-page book on this, I think my initial answer would be I don't know for sure. <laughs> um, I mean, it's difficult to know for sure because history tells us that um, – could it be possible that these identities that have become so ramped up and intensified um, demobilize again um, because those feelings of threat dissipate and other issues sort of arrive on the agenda? Yes, that's happened before. Is it possible that these identities once ramped up and mobilized symmetrically polarize politics for many years to come and new issues end up being seen through the lens of these tribal alignments that have now formed? Yes, that's happened before too. Um, so the truth is, we don't really know uh, yet how it's going to play out. Uh, it's quite possible that politics goes back to the traditional bread and butter economic issues. Maybe COVID accelerates that. Alternatively, it's quite possible that everything becomes uh, a bit of a tribal conflict. Everything becomes a bit of a culture war because voters, in trying to explain new issues, reach to these new identities that are now so chronically present for you them. You shouldn't have said voters. We always say that People. it is down to politicians, really, yeah. to so that's the other thing, cast yeah. these conflicts into politics or, um, well, I can't really say cast them out, but uh, in a sense... That is the temptation, and especially for politicians who are used to relying on ethnocentric voters and have had some success in winning them over. I think it will always be very tempting to try to get a, a quick win uh, because these issues are so emotive and they are about 
a survival for for a truly ethnocentric voter i honestly think that this instinct to be threatening to be threatened by others is about survival they really believe that their culture won't survive that their way of living will not survive and if there was a political option and especially if that political option is a big political party like the conservatives who are of course now in government and actually have uh, power to change policy right now I think that is going to be dangerous. Um, so if the mainstream politics moves on to economy, again, if COVID uh, pandemic um, especially causes a, a major long-term uh, recession, for example, that's likely. But if there are around politicians who want that conflict fueled, it will burn. That's my prediction. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that uh, politicians do have to bear some of the responsibility for their choices on that as well. Um, we're very strong believers that it's it's not just the case that politicians like uh, have no choice but to uh, respond to these phenomena. They help to shape these phenomena. What voters understand as being us or being them is partly shaped by how politicians frame these things. Whether people see particular issues as us versus them issues is partly down to the cues they get from politicians they trust about what an issue is about. So partly the answer to this question will depend on the choices that politicians make. And the problem is that uh, particularly on the uh, conservative side at the moment, there is the standing temptation now to reach for the kind of ethnocentrism panic button. Is this something that um, you, you think is sort of playing out in, in lots of other places? I mean, again, you know, in, intuitively, if you look at um, how much of the Republican campaign is going in, in the US presidential election, uh, there are examples of um, various, um, I guess, you know, groups on the right in European countries. You know, we'd say, oh, yeah, you know, this is we, we can really see these. Um, kind of identity conservatives and, you know, maybe link it directly to these um, social changes, particularly around education, or that they're things that are kind of like, you know, unique and, and weird to Britain that, that make you say we should be sort of slightly cautious about um, applying this analysis elsewhere. So uh, we do mention a lot of parallels with elsewhere, uh, in the book, and it's uh, not just to do with education, which is a trend everywhere in the kinds of politicians that we get. Uh, also, there has been an international trend that we see everywhere. But we do have to remember that Europe is very different, uh, mostly because in the European, most European countries, we do see uh, proportional representation and therefore multi-party systems. And uh, therefore, in uh, the vast majority of European countries, now we have seen a bit of a retreat uh, in fact, of the radical right. And um, we certainly see a fluctuation of all these political options to a greater extent than in America. There is a, a system that's polarized by design, by the fact that we have only those two parties. Um, if the parties start polarizing and making differences between each other based on those identity issues, it is much harder to overcome that problem. And this is, I think, uh, a warning sign for Britain, because Britain, of course, has a very similar um, system. And it's not quite as starkly two party uh, as in America, but there certainly is this risk um, that 
it will get baked in uh, those identity conflicts into the two parties. And in fact, as we uh, have discussed in the book, it has happened to an extent in 1960s, and it can happen again, that one of the parties will become forever the party of the uh, identity conservatives, and the other party will be the uh, identity liberal party. And this, in fact, is a way to perpetuate uh, that identity politics dynamic, because every time there will be an election, instead of arguing about economy and other issues uh, of policy, we will be arguing again about what is the main difference between the two parties. And that thing might be identity politics. And I mean, the, the US uh, during the Trump presidency, it provides like an amazing case study uh, of what what unfolds if uh, an an identity division uh, between ethnocentric and identity liberal voters becomes entirely primary. I mean, identity politics, racial politics, has always been central to to U.S. Uh, electoral politics for as long as the republic has existed in one form or another. But under Trump, it really has escalated. I mean, the Republican Party are the ethnocentric party. Trump's every pronouncement is infused with ethnocentrism, fear and hostility towards uh, immigrants, towards Latinos, towards Muslims, towards various countries in the world, towards women, anti-racism, you know, uh, towards anti-racist campaigners, all of it. Uh, the, the constant theme of Trump is uh, there are all these groups who want to sow chaos and disorder and only I stand in the way of it and will protect you, my in-group. I mean, that's the, the quintessential ethnocentrism. And Trump, in his election in 2016, was able to win over traditional economically left-wing working-class Democrats to form a just-about-winning coalition. However, within two years of doing that, the Republicans were losing uh, wealthier, highly educated white graduates in the suburbs hand over fist in state over st- after state. It cost them the House of Representatives. It cost them a number of Senate races. It looks set to do so again. So you have the, the mobilization around ethnocentrism, and then you have the counter mobilization of voters alienated by that ethnocentrism. Uh, and that, that is the risk when you take um, an identity division like this and move from it being one amongst the number of things that influences voters to becoming the single big decisive thing uh, that uh, aligns voters. Because there are plenty of wealthy suburban Republicans who have a number of reasons to prefer the Republican Party in terms of their economic interests, but they are not voting that way at the moment because the election is chronically about this identity conflict for them. And in the darkest timeline, I guess, in Britain, uh, we would see a similar kind of unfolding uh, here uh, to a situation where really the questions of um, ethnocentrist or identity liberal become central to how everybody votes in a rather different way. And I don't think it's just about ethnocentrism, but it is about an identity question. That's how Scottish politics has ended up at the moment. Right now, the question of independence or union just completely dominates everything else uh, in Scottish politics. And as a result, voters with very different interests and views on a number of other uh, issues, including many of the central economic questions, are lining up for or against uh, independence uh, and basically going SMP or increasingly going conservative on the unionist side. So the, the, it's not just the initial mobilisation of ethnocentrism that can produce a big disruptive effect. There's further waves of counter mobilisation that can happen. Uh, and politicians who want to amp up ethnocentrism, that is the risk they run. 
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.